This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. How do you think about a vaccine from the perspective of actually getting to one and then how long that would take? What's, what's your sense? So let's just say we have a vaccine in the United States, or we have one in China, or we have one in Europe. If, in fact, the first parties to get these vaccines and get them made, how are they going to share the vaccine? Are they? Are they going to make it available to low and middle income countries? If China gets a vaccine first, will the U.S. have access to that? If we get a vaccine first, will we share it with the Chinese or Europeans? I can guarantee you that we will not have nearly enough in the earliest years, not just days, of this pandemic, just in terms of manufacturing, distribution. So we need to come up with an international scheme that we all buy into that says this is how the vaccine will be made and distributed. I don't want to see us get to a point where we have a vaccine, we can make it, and as the vial comes off the machine, we have no idea how or where it's going to be used, and we're going to be in a debate with that for some time. That would be really, truly a tragic situation. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Dr. Michael Osterholm is a professor of public health and is the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. He is the author of the 2017 book, Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs, in which he not only details the most pressing infectious disease threats of our day, but lays out a nine-point strategy on how to address them. We just sat down with Dr. Hosterholm to talk about the likely road ahead for COVID-19. We'll be right back with that conversation. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. 
Dr. Osterholm, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you. Thank you very much. I know um, you're extremely busy, so we appreciate you taking the time with us. I'd love to start with a paper that your institute published on April 30th titled The Future of the COVID-19 Pandemic, Lessons Learned from Pandemic Influenza. Let me ask you a couple of questions about that paper. Why did you choose to look for lessons in past influenza pandemics rather than in past coronavirus outbreaks? Well, first of all, thank you, Michael. It's great to be with you today. There are actually several reasons for why we did this. Um, uh, number one is let's just take coronaviruses in general and the family of coronaviruses, of which, of course, the SARS-CoV-2 is one member. Uh, it turns out that the two models that um, we have looked at in the past with coronaviruses are ones of uh, a seasonal type virus, ones that typically cause a common cold, uh, or in one instance, it can cause some pneumonia. And those are, in fact, seasonal only and uh, not one that uh, is all mimics what we're seeing with the current coronavirus. The second model is the SARS and MERS version, this uh, severe acute respiratory distress syndrome, which first emerged in China in the fall of 2002, made its way out of China via the Guangdong province into Hong Kong in 2003, and then spread around the world. Uh, MERS, which emerged in 2012 on the Arabian Peninsula, and uh, again, has continued to be a problem uh, in that area with humans. In both instances, those diseases were very different. Number one is while the SARS disappeared uh, from, you might say temporarily at least, we hope, uh, in terms of a disease problem, was because we recognized what the animal reservoir was or the source of the virus in the markets of the Guangdong province, and those were eliminated. Then humans, it turned out, uh, were really most infectious in day five, six, or seven of their illness, not earlier. And so once we understood that, we can identify potentially infected individuals, isolate them, and really bring transmission to zero. Uh, and that eventually resulted in the elimination of SARS as we know it. MERS is a bit more complicated because that virus actually is in dromedaries or camels. There's about 1.7 million camels on the Arabian Peninsula no one was going to put down camels uh, uh, like that. And so the virus continues to ping humans on the Arabian Peninsula. But again, like SARS, one is not infectious really until the fifth or sixth day. And so by early identification of patients, we can get them isolated and again, stop ongoing transmission. With the virus we're dealing with now, the SARS-CoV-2, it has taken on many of the properties of influenza. One is likely most infectious before onset of symptoms and maybe into the first day or two of, of illness. And that uh, is very much like flu in that regard and that you're not going to stop it the same way you would MERS or, or SARS because uh, it's not later transmission. The way that it uh, began transmission in Wuhan in the Hubei province uh, was very much like influenza. Uh, with uh, relatively high transmission of anyone infected individuals to others. And so we immediately uh, began to think of like influenza. Uh, based on that concept or model, our group actually called it on January 20th and said that this was likely going to be a worldwide pandemic, uh, that uh, the transmission would be very much like influenza, 
and that by late February, early March, we would see it around the world. And of course, that's exactly how it unfolded. But now we're at a point where uh, the question is, will it be like previous influenza pandemics going forward as a coronavirus? Uh, and that's where the paper that we published from our center was really all about. It was uh, saying, if it's like an influenza pandemic, we would expect to see activity around the world potentially in this first wave. It'd be sporadic, meaning it would occur in some locations, not at others. Uh, and some of the locations that did occur, it could be serious, like we saw in, in New York and uh, places like uh, Italy, but that it wouldn't occur uh, widely. And unfortunately, so far, this virus has been acting like that. And so we surely can consider the possibility that it might then, therefore, over the summer, actually begin to become uh, much less of a problem, like we would see with an influenza pandemic, within this large wave that would occur uh, five to six months or later after introduction. And that's what we worry about. Then we added two other models that said, if it's not influenza, what might it look like? And, uh, and we said, what if it's just a whole series of kind of smaller outbreaks that just keep occurring over and over again, or that it is a virus that's just in slow burn. But the key underlying feature to all of these models or scenarios is that we are currently in this country, somewhere between five to 20% of the population are infected. Only in very few locations is it as high as 20% like New York. Most of the country is at 5%. For this virus to develop what we call herd immunity, where there's enough transmission in the population with people becoming infected and developing what we hope is long-term immunity, we don't know that yet, it takes 60 to 70% of the population for that to happen with before the virus transmission will slow down. Now we can get there also by vaccine, but I think none of us at this point are gonna make that assumption uh, at least for the tw next uh, 12 months that we're gonna have a vaccine. So doctor, are the total number of deaths roughly the same in your three scenarios? And do you all have a sense of what that total is gonna look like by the time we get to the end of this thing? Well, I think uh, the first thing to do is just add perspective uh, for those who may doubt that this is a serious challenge. Uh, when you think about it, in the last hundred years, this virus has done something that no other disease has done since 1918 and the major uh, swine flu uh, pandemic of 18, 19, and 20. Some 65 days ago, this virus uh, illness, COVID-19, was not even in the top 100 causes of death in this country. Within short order, it became the number one cause of death in this country. No other diseases have done that. This is, this is remarkable. And so just at the outset, we have to understand this is a real problem. In terms of how we get to that 60 or 70%, as I um, mentioned a moment ago, uh, if we have a vaccine that can shortcut getting to that number and higher, with the vaccine, then obviously we're gonna reduce the number of cases or deaths. But if not, we have to anticipate that those 60 to 70% of people will include uh, a lot of deaths. And you can say, well, how many? Well, right now we're seeing increased number of deaths, particularly in what we call people with high risk uh, comorbidities, meaning underlying heart disease, kidney disease, uh, certain blood cancers, uh, certain lung cancers, and of course, being older age. Uh, and then one that is more unique to the United States than it was, for example, in China, is obesity. 
all of these play a role in what the uh, actual mortality rate is or how many people die from this virus. You'll see lots of debates about is it 1% or 0.1%, whatever. Uh, none of us know. I can only say that if you look at just a population of the United States and say, you know, 330 million people, if let's say 50% get infected, which is lower than actually herd immunity, you know, you're now talking about, you know, 165 million people. That's a lot of infections. If you look at that population and just take what we have now for understanding of the clinical disease, and these are data combined from China, from uh, what we saw in Europe and what we see in the United States to date, is about 80% of those people will actually have very mild to, to hardly noticeable illness. If the remaining 20% of that 165 million, if you look at that, about 10% will seek medical care but not need hospitalization. About 10% or half of that will need hospitalization. So now you're talking about you know 16.5 million people. Of that 5% that will need not just hospitalization but intensive care medicine, of that anywhere from one half percent to one percent will die, or basically somewhere in the neighborhood of 800,000 to about 1.6 million people. That's where the number comes down by the time this thing is over with. Now, hopefully, if drug therapies could become available before then that could reduce uh, the mortality rates, that would be great. Uh, well, again, we can't count on that yet. And this gives you a sense of potential we're seeing. And when you look at what's happened, I mean, again, come back to that 5 to 20% with most of the country and the 5%. Think how much suffering, pain, and death, as well as economic disruption, has occurred with just 5 to 20% of the population impacted. And you can see that just even given the number of deaths today, you know, well over 70,000 and marching north quickly, that at that 5 to 15%, that's not a hard stretch to imagine what it might be like if, in fact, uh, you know, all 100 and 65 million people get infected. So doctor, you have a, a 18 to 24 month timeline to get to herd immunity. And I'm wondering what that timeline assumes about shutdowns and social distancing. And I'm wondering if we end up doing more social distancing, could that push that 18 to 24 month timeline out even further? Uh, you know, Michael, we're really in this uh, kind of, you might say, guardrail situation where on one side, we're talking about locking down the country, much like was done in China with Wuhan and the Hubei province, which I think we all agree would be almost uh, a death toll for the society as we know it. It would be a, a, a major challenge, and I don't think sustainable for 18 months or more. Uh, on the other side, you have, if we do nothing, uh, this virus will run rampant. Uh, it will basically threaten our healthcare systems as we know them, many, many deaths. And in addition, not just among those with this virus infection, but people who have heart attacks, strokes, etc., who can't get medical care because our healthcare system is literally down. In addition to that, the number of healthcare workers who will continue to be exposed and develop infection as a result of their work will only grow in leaps and bounds. So if you have those two extremes and we say, well, you know what, those are not going to work, either one of them. We have what I think is this middle ground, what I consider 
threading the rope through the needle, where basically how do we release society back into uh, its everyday life by minimizing the number of people who might have severe disease, people who will go on and more, much more likely to die. Unfortunately, about 40% of our population of adults have either heart disease, uh, renal disease, have had one of these cancers, or are obese. And that's a challenge. So we're trying to figure that out because, again, we can't live on either guardrail. And so the question is, what will happen if we put social, or I like to call physical distancing in place, is that we have to figure out how do we integrate the people at the lowest risk of having infection back in society. Once they get infected, if they have durable immunity, meaning it's going to last for more than a couple of weeks, that's a great way to slow down transmission because they no longer can get infected even if they're exposed and they will no longer transmit to others. And so we don't know how we'll get to that 60 or 70% uh, in terms of can we change the outcome of death so we don't let people who uh, in that 60 or 70% get infected represent the population of at-risk people for severe disease, or is that just going to be impossible? Will we regardless end up infecting many of them? And we just don't know. I think the thing that if I had to leave your listeners with one very important point, this virus acts under a very, uh, uh, I would say, essential uh, law of physics, and that is viral gravity. Just like physical gravity, if you drop a book, it'll hit the floor. This virus is going to keep going. It's going to keep being transmitted by people until it basically runs out of people to infect. And, uh, or that there are so many people who have been previously infected that there were like rods in the virus transmission reaction. We slow that down, and that's what herd immunity gives us. So we just have to count on this virus continuing to transmit. Uh, maybe one Last question, doctor, about the virus itself, and that's looking out even further. What happens to the virus and the disease on the other side of that 18 to 24 months, right? On the other side of the pandemic? You know, we, we hear that over time the virus will evolve to be less virulent, less deadly. You know, is that true? If so, how does that happen? How long does it take? I guess what I'm asking is even after herd immunity drops the caseload, you know, significantly. Are we looking at a future in which this virus is as deadly as the one today? And will it remain a mortal threat to those people with vulnerabilities? Or is it going to evolve? Yeah, well, you're asking the uh, multi-trillion dollar question. And there are several uh, issues there that we don't yet understand that are critical to giving you a final and correct answer. Number one, um, will the virus mutator change and become less of a risk, meaning that it gets a milder disease? We don't know that. We don't have an experience like that with the coronavirus. Uh, if it were flu, I could surely say yes, it would happen, but that doesn't mean that it would go away. It becomes a seasonal flu virus and can still kill many thousands of people every year, even during the flu season. With the coronavirus, we're just in uncharted territories, and we have to admit we don't know. Second of all, can we make a vaccine against it? Will, in fact, uh, what we can do actually uh, cause an individual to develop immunity? And then how durable is that immunity? Does it last for a long time? Um, is it highly protective? We don't know that. We don't also know a third piece, which is if I get infected with the virus, 
will I develop that same durable immunity that I might get from a vaccine? And if so, how long does it last? How protective is it? So we just have to be honest and say, we don't know these answers yet. We have data uh, on a, in a limited way suggesting, number one, that there's at least short-term immunity. People get better. So your body must be fighting off the virus in some successful way. Number two is we've had several animal studies done where certain monkeys species, which mimic what we see in humans in terms of infection and disease, have been given the virus. They've recovered after having been ill, and then they've been challenged again, and they were protected. The same thing is true with two of the vaccines that are being evaluated right now. They, uh, animal, the monkeys were vaccinated, and then subsequently they were challenged with the virus, and they showed protection. So that's good news, but, but the long and short of it is we don't know how long that protection might last and, uh, and what it means. So to say what it's like on the other end, uh, you have laid out a very important scenario that we all uh, don't want to think about but must think about, and that is what if we can't get long-term protection? What if this virus doesn't change and become a more muted or uh, um, a, a virus that doesn't cause a severe disease? And we just don't know what the answers are to those yet, but they're absolutely critical questions we have to answer. So, Doctor, maybe we can keep with the vaccine theme here. How do you think about a vaccine from the perspective of actually getting to one and then how long that would take? What's what's your sense? Well, there's actually a series of steps here that all are critical. And if all of them are not in place, we don't have a successful vaccine. Number one is we have to figure out with the more than 100 vaccine candidates we have today that represent different kinds of vaccines, do any of them work? And what do I mean by work? Well, that's a challenge because uh, we haven't really defined that yet. And what if we get a vaccine that only protects about 20% of the people? Is that one we're going to make and distribute worldwide? Surely better than nothing. Uh, But is that an international enterprise that will go? What if we get a vaccine that, of course, uh, protects people 95, 90, 95% of the time, but we're not sure if it's long-term immunity. We'll have to figure that out, or we might be back, back vaccinating people literally every year like we do for influenza. The second piece, after if we get that, we show, still have to show that it's safe. And there are challenges with this kind of a virus vaccine because we know that coronaviruses in general, specifically the SARS virus from 2003, actually can cause a, a condition when you're vaccinated for that virus and then you get infected with the real virus of what we call antibody-dependent enhancement. This is a condition where if you make a little bit of antibody as a result of the vaccine, and then you get infected, you may get this over-vigorous immune response enhancement kind of picture that can cause a shock-like condition and actually can be fatal. We saw that with dengue vaccine several years ago, a new one that had come out that uh, caused children in the Philippines who were vaccinated to actually have a very severe life-threatening infections, literally because of the vaccine. That vaccine obviously is not on the market anymore. So we have to be certain that this vaccine is safe also. And how much safety uh, will we uh, demand of the vaccine is a question as to, well, what's the other side of the coin uh, with the number of deaths that the disease itself will cause? So if we have a vaccine that one out of 100,000 people have a bad event with it, 
we surely may decide to go for it. This is still a much, much better option than, than X percent of people getting this infection and dying. The other challenge we have, which we haven't really addressed yet at all, is a critical one. And that is, how will this vaccine be manufactured and distributed? So let's just say we have a vaccine in the United States, or we have one in China, or we have one in Europe. If, in fact, the first parties to get these vaccines and get them made, how are they going to share the vaccine? Are they? Are they going to make it available to low- and middle-income countries? If China gets a vaccine first, will the U.S. have access to that? If we get a vaccine first, will we share it with the Chinese or the Europeans? I can guarantee you that we will not have nearly enough in the earliest years, not just days, of this pandemic, just in terms of manufacturing, distribution. And so we need to come up with an international scheme that we all buy into that says this is how the vaccine will be made and distributed. And then even within a country, we need to decide who gets it first. For example, in the United States, I could very strongly argue that the first group of people that should get this vaccine are healthcare workers. They're putting their life on the line every day trying to provide the care to these patients and putting themselves at risk. Well, if we say healthcare workers are first in line, I can tell you there'll be a general outcry from many in the public saying, wait a minute, they're taking care of their own first. That's not right. And so the many um, medical, legal, ethical issues that are going to come up around this have to be addressed now. I don't want to see us get to a point where we have a vaccine, we can make it, and as the vial comes off the machine, we have no idea how or where it's going to be used, and we're going to be in a debate with that for some time. That would be really, truly a tragic situation. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Dr. Osterholm. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Um, doctor, just one more quick question on a vaccine. Are there differences between vaccine development for influenzas and for coronaviruses that make the latter more or less challenging? Well, in fact, there are substantial differences between what we do currently for influenza vaccine and for coronavirus vaccine. Within the influenza vaccine area, we actually have really two large categories of vaccines. One is what we call egg-based production. We're actually growing the virus in chicken eggs and then harvesting that virus and then adding uh, uh, it to our vaccines. Uh, the second one is where it's grown in the cell culture, meaning much like we do other traditional vaccines. Um, and in some cases, there are things called adjuvants or chemicals to boost the response. There are different kinds of presentations of the virus. So that's the case there. We also have a number of different ways that we're looking at uh, uh, with regard to this coronavirus. And uh, one of the key ways that's being done right now is actually inserting genetic material into the host as the vaccine. And actually that genetic material then gets inside of human cells and it produces 
part of the virus in a way that that's what induces the immune response is to the actual particle production by your own cells in your body. So that's one way. There's other ways that are also being looked at uh, that uh, represent, uh, you know, really the, the cutting edge of new modern vaccines. One day we hope the flu vaccine uh, improves and gets to a similar place. So yes, there are differences and uh, the experimentation we're doing right now uh, with the vaccines and the coronavirus are really very, very critical because they're not only going to teach us about what we can do with the coronavirus, but even modernizing all of our vaccine uh, production one day down the road. So, so doctor, uh, thoughts on antiviral development? Right. If we can't get a vaccine, of course, the next best thing is let's hopefully reduce the severity of disease and, of course, deaths. Now, one of the challenges we have with this virus infection that I mentioned earlier is that people are most infectious literally in the days before they become ill, if they become ill at all, right up in through the earliest stages of illness. And uh, that is what's driving the pandemic, that kind of transmission. So uh, we don't expect a drug to have any impact on that. So in other words, the cases will continue to occur. The point being, though, is among those who become ill, who is it that's going to more likely become seriously ill and then ultimately die? If we can find a drug that can be given to patients early on in their illness that prevents them from becoming severely ill or dying, that would be still a major, major game changer. And so that's what we're working on right now, our drugs that way. Now, it's disease is very complicated. The more we learn about it, the more we realize how little we know about it. And there appears to be two totally different parts of this virus infection picture that have to be considered. One is the growth of the virus itself. And clearly that's when we talk about antiviral drugs, we're trying to hold down that virus reproduction uh, as if that's the primary reason why we're sick. One of the key components is uh, what we call acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, which is an immune response that basically causes a shock-like picture in the individual. As well as we're seeing now a type of inflammation, particularly inside of the blood vessels, which again is an immune response that is actually causing blood clots to form and strokes to happen. So uh, the drug picture really is pursuing two totally different uh, approaches. One is trying to deal with the virus itself, and one is trying to uh, reduce the negative impact of the human immune response. What we'll have eventually, we don't know. And again, as I've shared with the vaccine itself, Uh, We also have to understand when treatments do become available, if they do, how will they be distributed globally? How will they even be distributed in the United States? Uh, In the earliest days of the first drug that we've seen uh, uh, come forward as a possible drug, there have been great challenges of how it's been distributed. A lot of outcry from hospitals that they did not have access to the drug when others did. And so, again, we have the same challenges with drug manufacturing distribution we're going to have with vaccine. So doctor, kind of, maybe this is an unfair question, but maybe the bottom line on vaccines and antivirals, uh, should we be optimistic, pessimistic? What's your sense of the probability that we will get something in terms of a vaccine or an antiviral that will significantly shorten that 18 to 24 month time period that you're talking about? Well, first of all, it's not an unfair question. We're all asking the same question of ourselves. So 
Uh, let me just say, I hope we have both and soon, but we both also realize that's not a strategy. Hope is not. Um, and so I think that the likelihood of finding antivirals uh, and immune suppressing drugs that will be helpful is real. I think we're going to find some of those. The question is, how much impact will they have? How many patients will actually have access to these drugs? I can assure you that most of the world will not, because what's going to happen is going to occur largely in the next 12 to 18 months, and just ramping up production of a drug and making it available worldwide would take far much more time than that that we have. So, so I'm more optimistic on this side of the house, but uh, again, I don't know how much impact it might have or not have. As far as vaccines, the same is true. We, as I mentioned, we have data from at least uh, early vaccine studies in, in subhuman primates, monkeys, that there may be some protection. What we don't have any clue on is how long that might last, how complete that protection might be, and just how safe the vaccines will be. So uh, I think that's all possible. I do think that the vaccine availability is not going to occur anywhere near what some of the very optimistic estimates have been of early next year. I think to get an effective vaccine, even with uh, all the, the possible uh, shortcuts that we can take without uh, challenging safety or how determine how well it works, means that we're well into next year at the earliest before we'd have a vaccine. And of course, this pandemic may have played itself out largely before that could even happen. Mm -hmm. Doctor, there's a, there's a lot of politics, as you know, swirling around early missteps by the Chinese, by perhaps our own government. But if I'm reading your Institute's paper correctly, that this has to go through right, a certain percentage of the population before it's over, then I'm wondering how serious at the end of the day from a public health perspective were the consequences of those early missteps. You know, if the Chinese, for example, had handled this perfectly, would we be in a fundamentally different place today than we are or, or not? How do you think about that? Well, you know, I've said over and over again, we're not driving this tiger, we're riding it. And what I mean by that is, is that when you have a respiratory transmitted virus like this, it clearly is a situation where um, what humans can do to limit transmission short of a globally available vaccine is very limited. Now, the Chinese clearly suppressed information in what was happening in Wuhan in December of last year. And uh, despite that, information got out. Uh, you know, our center began following this uh, unfolding scenario in December. And we were able by, in the early part of January, to determine that this was not SARS or MERS, that it was uh, acting much more like a flu virus transmission pattern with just generally available public information. On January 20th, I put out a statement that actually said that this was going to cause a pandemic globally and that transmission would occur around the world, but would not likely be detected until enough cases surfaced, probably till the end of February, early March. Um, you know, we didn't need any classified information. Uh, we just had general source information to be able to, to determine that. So I don't think any other country can use as an excuse that we didn't have that information. Chinese really started to change course right around the first of the year and did provide much more information. 
Actually, on January 11th, they published the entire sequence of the virus uh, so that any nation, any government, any private entity could begin working on uh, tests for the virus. They could begin working on vaccines. Uh, in what I would call the fog of a serious outbreak or ep epidemic, that was pretty fast to get that kind of information out. So uh, I, I don't think that they hid any information that would have had a substantial impact on how we responded. I think what we had was a warning at that point that we needed to gear up around the world and look at how well we were prepared to respond to a pandemic, how many N95 respirators we had, et cetera. I think, unfortunately, our government uh, and others too squandered that time because they didn't uh, go forward and really do the kind of preparedness work that I think most of us would do. I have a, a current article out in Foreign Affairs, which actually goes into some detail and discusses that. I think what did happen is I mentioned on January 20th, I, uh, I came forward with a statement to this effect that it would cause a pandemic. I, uh, uh, in conversations with senior leaders at 3M, one of the largest N95 respirator manufacturers in the world, uh, shared with them this information and said, you know, we really need to have all hands on deck for manufacturing these. And in fact, on the morning of January 21st, 3M went forward full bore 24-7 full production and more by more than almost six weeks beat uh, the first request from the U.S. government for increased production. So, you know, I think we'll go back at time and, and consider who should have done what, when, and where. Two points. One is this virus is going to largely do what it's going to do, and I don't believe we would have ever stopped it from uh, transmission in our borders, even in a major way. And number two is that we did squander early time trying to get better prepared, uh, and that's what we're hoping right now we don't continue to do uh, in anticipating a potentially future big wave of this or just additional cases that will get us to that 60 to 70 percent infection level. So, Doctor, um, that's actually a great transition to another kind of thought here, which is in 2017, you wrote what I thought was a terrific book called Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs, in which you outlined a strategy for, for addressing infectious disease threats. And what I'm wondering is, what could we have done in the years before this pandemic to have mitigated the risk of it happening and to have better prepared for it if that mitigation failed? And what should we be doing now to better mitigate and prepare for the next pandemic down the road? Well, first of all, let me say that uh, this should never have been a surprise. In fact, in 2005, I wrote pieces in Foreign Affairs and Journal Medicine and other venues about why we weren't prepared for an influenza pandemic or a virus like an influenza uh, that would cause this worldwide outbreak of a respiratory transmitted agent. And uh, I must say, I wish we were back in 2005 because frankly, we were more prepared back then than we were today. Uh, and I'll explain that in a moment. But I think the, the challenge we have is kind of the creative imagination to think that this could happen. Uh, you know, people such as myself have been really pretty much labeled as scaremongers, you know, as people who just, you know, you're just scaring the hell out of us. Why? And, you know, I've always ascribed to the idea that 
my job is not to scare people out of their wits, but into their wits. And I think people are now beginning to realize this. In the book that you kindly mentioned just now, chapter 19 was an influenza pandemic scenario starting in China, in which I detailed what it would look like. And if you just take the word influenza out and put coronavirus in, it's exactly what's happened. And unfolded, just as we said, and of course, we still have months to go. So I think now people begin to realize that, you know, infectious diseases can do what even militaries can't do to the world. Uh, and that uh, we now have to have a whole new respect and understanding of what this means. Could we have done more? Absolutely. Uh, in terms of the vaccine world, we would not have had a vaccine specifically for this virus. But had we invested, much like the Department of Defense does in weaponry, a whole series of different vaccine platforms or ways that we can look at this, including coronavirus. Remember, after SARS and MERS, we knew we had to be better prepared for them, and we still had not developed the vaccines. We put so little uh, resources into this that basically we could have been much, much further along in jumpstarting vaccine work. The same thing is true with antivirals. We could have known much in a much more conclusive way what might work against a coronavirus. And I could lay out the other kinds of infectious agents we need to know about. So that's number one. There's no doubt about the fact that we have to reprioritize how we prepare for infectious diseases. The second thing is, these are going to happen. I'm not suggesting we can stop them. But when an animal um, virus emerges into a human, we got to pick it up quickly, and we have to be prepared then to minimize its impact. And today, I mean, in the strategic national stockpile, we have likely somewhere around 35 million N95 respirators for the country, when in fact the estimates were we'd need between 3.5 and 5 billion of those. And they wouldn't materialize overnight. It wasn't like there were supply chains or machines that could make them. And we just didn't envision this. So we are now way behind the eight ball and protecting our basic healthcare workers. Uh, that we could have done. And I could go through a list of other products like that, the testing reagents, et cetera. But I think the other piece of it is that's, that's a really very important one is we didn't understand the vulnerability of our supply chains. For example, we've been studying for the last uh, year and a half critical drug shortages in the United States, which are being accentuated, by the way, with this pandemic in a big way. And we brought together a, a world-renowned group of, of doctors to understand what drugs do we need every day or people die? What's on the crash cart? What's in the emergency room? What's in intensive care? And we came up with 156 drugs that if you don't have them within hours, people die or they're severely injured without having those drugs. 100% of them were generic. 62 were already in short status, meaning that there weren't enough already in this country before the pandemic. And as generic drugs, almost all of them were made offshore, most of them in China and India. And that vulnerability we have today, not only is for the American public, but our own Department of Defense. All the critical drugs they need are coming from China. Now imagine if we had outsourced all of our munitions production in China. People would say, well, you can't do that. Yet the very basis of keeping our troops healthy or needing treatments are in the hands of these countries. So I think that this pandemic has just accentuated all the supply chain challenges that have developed over the last 10 to 15 years that nobody thought about when we moved all of our manufacturing offshore 
and in particular to certain countries of the world. So I think that these are all things we can do in the future in a very different way. And I hope that we learn lessons from this pandemic that minimize the risk for pandemics in the future. And if they do occur, that will allow us to also limit the impact that they have. So, Doctor, you've been terrific with your time. I just want to finish with one more question. So as I read about the virus as a as a non-medical person, I'm struck by how little we know. Even after four months and, and more than four million confirmed cases worldwide, there is still so much that we don't know. And what I'm wondering is, as a medical expert, are you seeing about the level of knowledge that you would expect to see at this point or not? Um, and how do you think about that question of how much we know and, and how long it's going to take for us to know that? Well, we do have a lot yet to learn. Um, one is just about the disease itself. As I mentioned earlier, we're learning a lot about the many facets of the disease picture. It's not just a simple, straightforward disease. Uh, we are learning more about the virus all the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, what made it get to this point that does what it does. We're learning about how it's changing as it transmits around the world. I think uh, the level of new knowledge and information is overwhelming right now. I've never seen a proliferation of scientific information so quickly. Uh, the international response for vaccine research uh, and looking at how vaccines might work here, uh, looking at drugs, again, is unprecedented. I think our own country and our government has done a lot to fast forward that. So I do think that almost all the things that we need that way are getting done in terms of information. The challenge is, again, we're on virus time, not human time. And what we need are answers yesterday, not tomorrow. We will get answers. But I think the uh, challenge we have is understanding, for example, if certain drugs are going to work, why would they work based on what we know about the disease? Well, we are learning things about this disease literally within the last week that we didn't know a month ago. So, so I think that it's just the fact that we're digesting lots and lots of information quickly. But I, I'm impressed by the body of knowledge. And if anybody is trying to stay current in this field, uh, it is a real challenge given the number of publications and the number of different uh, studies that are coming forward every day. Doctor, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. I want to tell my listeners that they should look for your foreign affairs article um, out this week, and they should also spend some time on your institute's website. I do several times a week, and I find it incredibly useful. So again, thank you for joining us, and it was great to have you. Thank you very much. It's my honor. Appreciate it. That was Dr. Michael Osterholm. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. 
Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.